If we want to understand what biblical conversion is, we have to understand not only the process by which salvation occurs, but also how do we gain assurance in our salvation. And I just want to tell you, the more I study this, the more mind-boggling it becomes. It is, in, in so many ways, the way that God works through salvation is a mystery. And, and yet, He has given us so much in His Word to seek to gain an understanding of it so that we can, first of all, have assurance in our faith so that we can know that we are saved. But also, so as we present the gospel to others, as we carry out biblical evangelism, when we're looking for people to respond to the gospel, that we have an idea of what it is exactly we're looking for. And so... All of these different aspects coming into play when we consider what, it, what, what does it mean to be converted. Now, as it makes sense that to be a biblically healthy church, we ought to understand what that is, both so that we understand it and so that we experience it. It seems that there are um, issues within churches and all across our nation, all across the world in which you have congregations which are not biblically converted. And which I mean is you're, you have memberships, people that are members that have not truly been saved. Now, can we change all that? Probably not. We're probably not going to eliminate that altogether. All but really, in, in studying this, our purpose isn't to point fingers and to say, well, they're not saved and they're not saved. The, the purpose is for us to examine our own conversion and, and then to be able to present the gospel in such a way as that we understand what it is we're looking for in genuine conversion. And so, as I said, we're not trying to, to pick on people or to, or to uh, you know, be the salvation police. And, and it really, it, I tell you what, it, it grieves my heart to, to be in churches and, and to be amongst people. And as soon as somebody slips, as soon as somebody falls into a bad way, they say, well, you know, they must not even be saved. Well, you know, we just need to slow down and back up a little bit because that's not our, that's not our place. That's not our place. Now, if, if we ever get to, if you ever get to a point and you follow the steps of, of biblical church discipline and someone is in unrepentant sin, you get to the point where it says you're to treat them as an unbeliever. That is, they now become an object of evangelism because they're not showing any evidence of salvation. But ultimately, that judgment belongs to God alone. That's, that's his place. Our place is to present the gospel clearly, to live biblically, and to represent Christ the best that we can. But there is, and when we look at statistics, it's just, it becomes apparent that there seems to be, at least, something missing either in in our understanding of salvation or in our living out of what salvation means. It reports suggests that there are approximately 16 million people in our country who identify as Southern Baptist. But only about 6 million of those are in church every Sunday. So where are the other 10 million? Not that church attendance in itself is a guarantee that someone's saved, but certainly it would suggest an indication of salvation. Because lost people don't go to church, not a lot. They have no desire for it, typically. Um, unless, you know, depending on why they're going, I suppose. And, um, you know, I don't believe that 
all the people that aren't in church every Sunday are lost any more than I believe the six million in church are all saved. You know, that's, that's something, again, that's, that's God's judgment, but it does make you wonder where they all are and what has given, I guess, a level of comfort for identifying Christians to stay away when the Bible speaks so much of the importance of congregational worship. And we know, as Hebrews tells us, that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, and, and to do so is to be in sin. And so, so these things just make us wonder what, it, what, these, what is going on in the lives of so many and, and in the lives of the church in general, given the overwhelming numbers of those who are walking in disobedience. And, uh, you know, John the Baptist says in John 3.34, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So obedience is a part of salvation. So as we look at biblical conversion tonight, we're going to be looking at some different aspects of what, what that means. And, and part of that is going to be clarifying some terms, helping us understand, you know, if you've been in church for a while, things like saved, regeneration, conversion, those are terms you're familiar with. But people who are new to the faith or, or haven't been Christians very long, they are people who are just kind of wondering. They might not understand what these terms mean. And, uh, and so we have to, you know, we can get really comfortable sometimes in our Christian lingo, and we can talk completely over somebody's head and not even realize we're doing it. And as we're, if we're trying to present the gospel and we're trying to get people to respond to the gospel, we need to be able to explain terminology so that they understand what it is we're talking about. And so, <clears throat> there are many biblical texts that deal with the issue that, so that we might examine ourselves to know whether or not we are in the faith. And, and we're going to be looking at some of those again. But as I said, you know, those terms like saved, born again, regenerated, conversion... Those are things that we all understand are all referring to the same thing. Salvation in Jesus Christ, the point where we come to faith in Christ, when we repent of our sins, we believe in Him, and we are changed. That is, we are adopted into the family of God by some mysterious work that He does in our hearts that leads us to respond to Him. In essence, that is biblical conversion. And we're going, to look, we're going to look more deeply into that tonight as we look at various um, texts of Scripture and, and different, um, some different quotes from some, some different books that I've been reading primarily from, uh, of course, we've been talking about what is a healthy church, and we'll, we'll look at some of that tonight as well and as, we, as we look at these things. So the process of salvation as I said, it has some people confused. It, and like I said, the more I study it, sometimes it's just, it's, it gets so overwhelming in trying to understand all the various aspects, it confuses me. And you just got to step back and look at it, at it in its, the simplest form and then to begin to study the parts of salvation. For some, the reality of conversion, it seems elusive. And people, sometimes they don't, they can't, they have trouble, I'll say, finding assurance in their salvation. To, to knowing whether or not they're genuinely saved. I can't tell you the number of people that I've come across that they, they just say, you just can't know. I mean, people, they, they think, you just can't know whether you're saved. You, you won't know until, until you meet God. And they just have no assurance whatsoever. They just, they said, there's no way for you to know. And I said, well, that's, you know, 
1 John chapter 5 says, I've written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. So I think that God wants us to know whether or not we're, we're saved. We're going to look at some of those verses um, at, the, at the end of our discussion um, tonight. But, uh, you know, for other people, they misunderstand salvation to be a matter of ceremony, after which it doesn't matter how they live. They think, I've done that. I'm good. I'm covered. So, and, uh, and that's equally as heartbreaking for people to, to think that somehow that some event in their, in their past life has covered them for all eternity so that what they're doing now has no bearing on the reality of their standing before God. And that's something that, that, we, that we need to deal with as well. You know, our salvation is more than just a one and done. It is a change that affects the rest of our lives. Uh, J.D. Greer, in a, in a book that I've been reading, borrowing from Brother Ian, he says, salvation does indeed happen in a moment. And once you are saved, you are always saved. The mark, however, of someone who is saved is that they maintain their confession of faith until the end of their lives. Salvation is not a prayer you pray in a one-time ceremony and then move on from. Salvation is a posture of repentance and faith that you begin in a moment and maintain the rest of your life. I think that's a pretty good definition for what salvation is. He describes in that book an encounter with a young man when he was himself struggling with his own salvation, he talks about asking Jesus into his heart about 5,000 different times. He was baptized four different times because he just could never get assurance. And, but in his, in his young life as a teenager, he's talking about being on the basketball court and encountering this guy, and this guy was all tattooed up. He said he had so many tattoos, he didn't even know what color his skin was. But he's, but he's talking to the guy and trying to, trying to witness to him, and, and the guy stops him for a second. They're just out on, you're just playing basketball out on the, at the park, and the guy says, are you trying to witness to me? And so he was shocked at first that the guy knew what witnessing was, and, uh, and then as he, he says, well, yeah, and the guy just kind of, he just stopped him, and he said, man, no one's tried to witness to me in a long time, and uh, basically said that he went to youth camp when he was, when he was a teen, that uh, he prayed a prayer, he became a super Christian, that he, would, he went out, he actually shared his faith with other people, and, and they were saved, and then somewhere along his journey, he discovered the opposite sex, and uh, the... Uh, all of the excitement that comes along with that, and he didn't like the idea of God telling him who he could and couldn't be with, and so now he was a happy atheist. And he says, but you know what? I, was a, I went to a Baptist church, and they taught me once saved, always saved, so even if I'm wrong, I'm good, because I had that experience. And then he asked him, he says, you're a Baptist, right? And Greer's res response was no response. He just says, awkward silence for me. Because he understood just enough of our Southern Baptist lingo and, and theology, but he had adopted just fragments of that that fit his life and his understanding, and, and he, but he was holding on to something that wasn't genuine. I mean, you... I'm going <laughs> to... You can't... If you walk away from the faith... It's evidence that you were never truly saved. And I think that, that is probably the only time when we can look at somebody and say, you know what, maybe you're not saved. You know, I don't, I don't like to do that to people, but I think in, in, that kind of, in that situation where they've walked away and they're denying God, I think it's pretty safe to say that, that, they're, that they're not 
saved. There needs to be a consistency of obedience to Christ, demonstrating a heart that belongs to Him. So what does it mean to have faith? What what is faith? Well, faith is belief, right? And this this is one of those parts of understanding salvation that really kind of is a sticking point in some people's minds because we use the word believe in so many different ways. I mean, we, we, you come to John 3.16, for God so loved the world, world that whosoever believes in his name should not perish but have everlasting life, right? So we know, so belief is equated with salvation. But what does it mean to believe? Do we just accept some facts about who Jesus was? Do we just was? Do we just believe that he was the Son of God, that he lived on the earth, that he went to the cross, that he died and he rose again? And if we just accept those facts, is that what it means to believe in him? No. I think Scripture paints a very different picture for us. And if you want to open your Bibles tonight, we're going to be in the Gospel of John um, quite a bit. Um, Several different references there, uh, beginning in John chapter 2. And uh, because I, I believe John, you know, we're going to be in John and we're going to be in 1 John. We're going to jump around some other places, but John and 1 John are going to be the two places where we're going to spend time tonight as we talk about what biblical conversion is. What does it mean to be saved? But John chapter 2, verses 23 and 25 demonstrates, I think, probably the best demonstration in, in, a, in a group of verses in the, in the New Testament that we can use to demonstrate the difference between what we'll call general belief and genuine faith. And in John 23 and 25, it says this of Jesus. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. I want, to, I want you to focus on two words in these, in these verses. First of all is the word believe in verse 23. Many believed in his name. And then on verse 24, the word entrusting. Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. Those two words, chapter 2, John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now, both of those words, the word believed and the word entrusting, they actually are translated from the exact same Greek word. They're both the word for faith. They're both the word for belief. So you could translate this literally, they were believing in Jesus, but he wasn't believing in them. That's a pretty stark difference in how the word is used. Now typically when we see, typically in John's writing, when you see that to believe in his name, you're talking about genuine saving faith. That's just the, the formula that John uses in talking about salvation, except here. And I think he makes it clear that that's not what he's referring to, because if, listen, if we're believing in Jesus, but he's not believing in us, there's a problem, because he obviously is not talking about genuine faith as far as our belief. He's talking about a mental assent to some facts. He's talking about the kind of faith that these, these, the kind of faith these people had, they said, this guy is somebody. Look at all that he's doing. I believe he's the Messiah. I believe, I believe he's come. I believe he can heal people. 
I believe he's, he's a great man. And that's it. They wanted him for his power. They wanted him for his identity. They wanted it, but they, but they were not willing to submit themselves to his lordship. Which is why Christ wouldn't, wasn't believing in them. He wasn't entrusting himself to them. Because it says in the very last part of verse number 25, it says, because he himself knew what was in man. That is, he knew their heart. And when we think about genuine conversion, when we think about what salvation is, we're talking about a heart issue. And, and while there are evidences, there are outward expressions of faith, and this is, I think this is the thing that makes genuine faith so confusing and so hard to, to pinpoint is because who can see into the heart of anybody? I mean, we, we just, we can't. We can't know what's in someone's heart. The only evidence of what's in someone's heart is witnessed through how they live their life. And so we, we put a lot of weight on actions. And this is, this is really what Faith, genuine saving faith is, it's belief that does something. It is belief in action. It is genuine faith says, I believe this and I'm acting in response to that belief. Not just that I'm ascending to some, that I'm agreeing to some facts, but I'm actually going to respond in such a way as to demonstrate that I actually believe this. I've used this illustration before, and uh, Charlie and I were just talking about f- flying, right? Get, getting on a plane, right? It takes, a, it takes a, think about it, it takes a lot of faith to get on a plane. You got to believe that a 20-ton piece of metal can get off the ground and fly, okay? That's, that's something just in itself. Then, you're going to get on that plane, you don't get to meet the, uh, the pilot or the co-pilot or anybody, you just have to believe that these guys are qualified to be able to maneuver this thing and get you where you're going. Kind of makes you uneasy. I'm Charlie, Charlie, I'm not trying to scare you, brother. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, but if you didn't believe that that plane could fly and you didn't believe that, those, that the airline was checking these guys out, then you're not going to get on that plane. So it takes a certain amount of faith to step out and to step onto that plane and to put your hands in, put your life, sorry, put your life in the hands of these, of these guys that are running the show. And that's, that's what we're doing when we come to faith in Christ. We're saying, listen, I, I'm, I'm trying to get to heaven. And the only way I'm going to get there is to put my life in the hands of Jesus. And so I'm, I'm going to see, I'm going to do what he says because only by doing what he says can I get there. He, he's, he's got the only ticket that's going to get me in. So I'm going to come to him and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do things the way that he says. And, that, and that's what, when we talk about faith, we're talking about entrusting. In, in and that's the, you know, this word that it uses, Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. We need to entrust ourselves to Christ. That's what it means to believe. That's what it means to have that genuine saving faith. When, when, when we consider what faith is and what it looks like and, and we, in the process of conversion, I would say this. I think the primary difference between a general belief and genuine faith is the presence of repentance. 
You cannot have biblical conversion without heartfelt repentance. It, it just it does not happen. Repentance is often defined as a turning away from sin and a turning to Christ. It is called the first act of faith. And while it involves our action, we need to recognize it's also a gift from God. It's something that God grants to us. I want to share with you from the Baptist Faith and Message of 2000. This is the uh, statement of faith for, for the Southern Baptist Convention and for our church. It says this, it says, Regeneration, that is salvation, or the new birth, is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. There is no salvation apart from repentance. And repentance, more than just being something that we do, it is something that is granted to us by God. God actually works to bring us to repentance. Listen to Acts chapter 5, verse 31. It says, He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Repentance was granted to Israel. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 2.25 speaks of, he says, with gent- with, we are to with gentleness correct those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So we see through these examples, and these aren't the only places where it talks about God granting repentance, but through these examples, we see that repentance is not just an action, but it is a gift imparted to us by God. So now while we can't deny that we have a responsibility to respond to the preaching of the gospel, we must understand that we are utterly dependent on God to act on our behalf. Mark Dever in What is a Healthy Church tells us, he says, conversion certainly includes our actions, as we've discussed, yet conversion is much more than that. Scripture teaches that we must have our hearts replaced, our minds transformed, our spirits given life. We can't do any of this. The change every human needs is so radical, so much at our very root, that only God can do it. He was responsible for our natural birth, so He must give us new birth. Jesus echoes this truth in John 6, 44. He tells us, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Apostle Paul writes in Titus 3, verse 5, he says, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. You see, repentance needs to be recognized as the outcome of God's work in our hearts. When God gets a hold of our heart, when He convicts us of sin, He brings us to the place where we recognize that our sin has separated us from God, that it has brought guilt before us, that we deserve only judgment, and that our only hope is in Christ. And that leads us to a place of seeking God's forgiveness. We put ourselves at the mercy of God, and we call upon Christ Believing that his sacrifice is the only sufficient 
means of dealing with our sin. I think one of the best pictures of repentance that we see in Scripture comes to us in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18, verse 13. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Some of y'all are familiar with that. The Pharisee is there praying in the temple, boasting about how good he is, thanking God for how good he is. But in verse 13, it talks about the tax collector. It says, standing some distance away, he was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, and he was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The recognition of sin that cries out for God's mercy. That is a biblical picture of repentance. A biblical picture of what the moment of conversion looks like. And I think it's, I think it's important for us to be, I, I, to be able to identify a moment of conversion. But I don't think we need to be so hung up on that moment that we miss out on the reality of what faith is. Sometimes we get so focused on the moment that we forget to live for Christ now. See, because genuine salvation is really not about that moment. It's about what God's doing with us right now and how we're responding to Him right now and how we're trusting in Him right now. That's what salvation is meant to look like. There's a, and repentance is not just something that is meant to be a singular experience. It is the beginning of an experience with God. Because as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of Christ and our knowledge and understanding of His Word, the Holy Spirit should continue to convict us of sin, should continue to reveal to us where we've fallen short. So we ought to be in a state that we will continue to repent of sin as God reveals it to our, to our hearts, and that we will continue to grow in grace and understanding to grow in faith. Greer comments in his book that repentance and faith are heart postures you take toward the finished work of Christ. You might express the beginning of the posture in prayer, but don't make the mistake of equating that prayer with the posture. The sinner's prayer is not a magic incantation or a recipe you follow to get a salvation cake. The real stuff, the stuff that matters, is the posture of repentance and faith behind the words you speak. The prayer is good only insofar as it verbalizes the posture. Genuine conversion is a work of the Spirit accomplished in the heart of a person. If our only assurance of salvation is a past experience, there's a good chance that we're not genuinely converted. Because a change of heart isn't manifested only in a moment. A change of heart is manifested continually over time. James tells us very pointedly in his, in his book that faith without works is dead. That is, faith that doesn't produce good works, that doesn't produce obedience, that doesn't produce righteousness, is not a genuine faith. It's a faith that, that, that is void of any real saving power. But we must be careful in over-applying that logic to our life, and even more careful of over-applying that logic to the lives of others, or we get to the point where we begin to equate works with 
salvation. And we need to avoid that error as well. And that's why I said, that's why, this is why it gets so complicated. <laughs> but we have to step back sometimes. That's why I say we have to step back and we have to look at the big picture. Salvation is a work of God in our hearts that produces a change in our actions and an ongoing reality in our relationship with Christ. We can never be saved by our activity. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes that clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. You know what amazes me is right after that, Paul comes back in verse 10, and he says, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So he says, listen, works don't save you, but if you're saved, you're going to work. And so when we, when we talk about biblical conversion, that's, that's where we come down. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It is something that produces a changed heart that is evidenced in the way that we live our life, trusting in Christ moment to moment and day to day. But there's also the aspect of our faith as we are looking back and trying to define that moment and then, and then looking around and looking at what, what are the evidences of genuine saving faith. I'll ask you to turn to the uh, book of 1 John at this point. And we're going to look at several verses because 1 John, and I, and I quoted you, at the beginning, 1 John 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That is, that is one of the several reasons that John gives for writing, for writing this letter. But throughout the letter, he speaks of those evidences of genuine saving faith. He speaks of those evidences of, of this is what it looks like to be saved. And he speaks of those things that are manifestations of the heart. First John chapter 1, verse, beginning in verse number 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. Genuine faith deals with the reality of sin. It doesn't deny it, but it confesses it and forsakes it. And to not do that is to say that we're making God a liar. Listen, if you're making God a liar, you've got an issue with your relationship. And we need to, we need to be aware of that. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, it says, By this we know that we have come to know. Now how much clearer can it be? By this we know that we have come to know Him. If we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. So does this mean that we never break any of the commandments? No. John is establishing a pattern for life, a pattern of obedience in your life. He goes on um, later on. And uh, we're, we're going to get there. Um, but look down at verse number 10 first. Verse number 10. 
chapter 2. He says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Love is a manifestation of genuine conversion, loving our brothers. That's the, first, or the second commandment, right? The first commandment is love God. The second one's what? Love your neighbor, right? Verse number 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I think this one, this trips a lot of people up because I think a lot of Christians struggle with the love of the world. And I, and I, don't, and I don't think this is, again, John seems to speak very black and white about things. I mean, he's just very hardcore. He's just like, this is the way it is. And, and so when we see that, we're just like, how can we have any hope at all? Because I, I struggle with this. But I think the thing to ask yourself in evaluating your own life is, where is your heart? Again, remember, it's a heart issue. It's not, an act, not so much an activity issue, but it's a heart issue that results in activity. So when he talks about not loving the world or the things in the world, I think the question is, is not, do you, do you ask yourself, am I not saved because I, I keep desiring the things that are in the world? But I think what you ask yourself, is my desire for the things of the world greater than my desire for the things of God? And that's, and that's where we have to evaluate ourselves. Because if your desire for the things of the world is greater than your desire for the things of God, then there's a problem. Then you've come to, to a point where, where you're choosing the world over God. And that reveals an issue. Look at verse number 19. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Again, this, is, this goes back to what I said earlier about those that abandon the faith. We can be certain that they were never truly converted. Because if they had been, they would have continued with us, but because they went out. And this doesn't mean just going out from a local congregation. This means going out from the faith. This means abandoning the faith. If they abandon the faith, then they've not truly been converted. Heart issues. Verse number 29, chapter 2. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And this is where, this is where I was thinking... A little, um, a little earlier, oh, chapter, let's go on to chapter 3, um, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Establishing patterns of behavior. Verse number 9. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God of God. Again, the, the English is very unforgiving here. The Greek's a little more forgiving if you understand it because it is conveying the idea of habitual sin. It's, it's conveying the idea of continuous sin, the practice of sin. It is, this is the pattern of your life that's being established. And we could go on 
John, like I said, John does a masterful job not only of pointing out those things, those matters of the heart that show us what our relationship with God ought to look like, but also encouraging us to pursue those realities. The question of genuine conversion is not one that asks if you prayed a prayer one time or if you had an emotional experience. Those things are good and and appropriate in their time, but they're not ultimately what you need to know. What you need to know is has your heart been changed by the power of God? Have you been convicted of sin? Have you, have you been led to a place of repentance? Have you grown in your understanding and knowledge of Christ and His Word since, your time, since the time of your conversion? Are you trusting in Him at this very moment? These are the questions that we need to ask ourselves as we examine our own faith. These are the questions that inform our understanding of the response to the gospel as we share it with others. Biblical conversion is important for the health of the church. You can't have a healthy church if you have unconverted people. You can't have a healthy church if you don't have an understanding of what biblical conversion is because when you witness to people, you're going to, you're going to seek a response from them in accordance with your understanding of what conversion is. So what we're trying to discern as we witness to people is how God is dealing with their heart so that we can lead them to embrace Him and submit to Him in genuine repentance and an exercise of faith. We preach the gospel clearly and we expect clear responses to its truths so that we might individually and corporately experience the reality of genuine conversion. Let's pray together. Lord, I, just, I thank you for these various truths that you've given to us tonight through this study. I thank you, Lord, that, uh, Father, we don't have to understand it completely to be able to enjoy the benefits of salvation. We need to know that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And we need to believe that your work on the cross was sufficient to deal with our sin. Father, help us to trust you more. Give us of your love, of your character, of your truth, and help us to grow in the grace of salvation that we might continue to represent you in this world until the time of our homecoming. Father, give us grace. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding. And help us, Lord, to have the assurance of genuine conversion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go on, Keegan. All right. I want to ask you all to open your Bibles with me this morning, if you would, to the book of 1 Peter. As we continue our verse-by-verse exposition of 1 Peter, we are in chapter 4 this morning. If you'll open up there, we uh, began last week looking at at, uh, the first six verses of chapter 4 and 
We saw in those verses that we are commanded there to arm ourselves for the purposes of God. And so in, as we continue our, our verse-by-verse uh, study of this passage, I just want to remind you a little bit of, of where we've been and, and, and where we are going in this text. The, uh, the command there in, uh, in verse number 1, where he says, arm yourselves, it's, that, it's a command which speaks of, of an army getting ready for war. And, uh, and that's how we're often, as Christians, that's how we're pictured. That's how we're instructed. We're pictured as, as God's army preparing for battle. Um, they're, they're, we fight battles every day. And we need to remember um, not only that there is a war going on, but that we are involved in it as God's children, that he has a purpose in, in calling us out to stand for him. And uh, Peter's purpose in writing this section of text is not so much to tell us how to fight as much as it is to encourage us to fight. He's giving us more the motivation of fighting that war than he is the, the tools for fighting the war. So he's, he's trying to encourage believers who are in the midst of suffering. They're suffering um, unjustly. They're suffering for their faith, and he wants to encourage them, reminding them that they are in a battle, but God's purposes are being accomplished through that, even as Christ suffered to accomplish God's greater purpose, so we too are called to follow his example and serve the Lord and accomplish his purposes for us. And so, so this is what Peter is talking about as he tells us to arm ourselves for the purpose of enduring that God may be glorified in us as his purposes are accomplished. And so, let us stand together in honor of reading God's Word. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray, Lord, that it would be an encouragement to us as it was to the original readers. We pray, Father, that you would give us perspective, that your spirit would take these truths and speak to our hearts that we might draw close to you this day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The first thing that you should notice in this text is following the command to arm yourselves is that 
it says that he who has suffered has ceased from sin, that the first purpose that we're to accomplish is we're pursuing that, of course, recognizing we're arming ourselves with the purpose, the same purpose of Christ, that is to honor God. And the first purpose there is that we might cease from sin, that we might defeat sin. Now, Christ ultimately defeated sin at the cross. But practically, we defeat sin in life by ceasing to pursue it. So what Christ has done ultimately, we join in his work in a practical sense. He has defeated the power of sin so that we are forgiven and we are no longer under condemnation. But we still battle sin. God's purpose is that we would no longer be slaves to sin, but that we would overcome and that we would reflect the glory of Christ and also accomplish his will. That is, that we would demonstrate God's glory. That's what it tells us in verse 2, that we would lift the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. As we seek to overcome sin, our purpose is to glorify God, to demonstrate his glory, to demonstrate the work that he has given us, or the work that he has done for us in our pursuit of him. And as we move on this morning into verses 4 through 6, Peter continues to focus our attention in arming ourselves to attain God's purposes in us. And we have two additional purposes that we're going to be looking at this morning. Understanding that the suffering that Peter's referring to now, and it becomes more obvious in the text, is the suffering of living in a culture that, God, that hates God. The, you think about who Peter's writing to. He's, he's writing to people. He's not writing to believers in Jerusalem. He's writing to, to, to believers that are in, in, uh, in what they call Asia at the time, as a modern-day Turkey. He's writing to those believers who live in a, in a pagan culture. They, they don't know the God of Israel. And because they are different than the world around them, they are being mocked. They are being ridiculed. They are being harassed. And some of them, as, as persecution is growing, some of them have actually been martyred for the faith. And Peter wants to remind them to stand fast, to be firm, to be encouraged, that God's purposes are being accomplished. Continue to encourage yourselves with the truth that God has not forsaken you, but he is continuing to work through you. He has called you for the purpose of defeating sin, so don't give in to the culture around you. Don't join them in sin, but cease from it. And in ceasing from it, pursue God's will that he might be glorified in you. And then he, and then he continues on in, in the next, in verse number, in verses 3 through 5, to remind us that we are to provide an example to the world around us. That one of the reasons why we cease from sin, one of the reasons why we suffer, one of the reasons why we endure is to be an example to others. To be an example to other believers, to encourage them, but also to be an example to the world around us that is lost. He says, we are called to be different. As Christians, we're not supposed to look like the rest of the world. We're not supposed to enjoy the desires of the flesh, to pursue those things which separate us from God, which are displeasing to God. Look at verse number three. He says, For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. 
having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. He says, that's, that's what your life was like before. Now, you're to be different. You're not to pursue those things. And I can just, I can just hear some people reading through this and thinking, well, I never did those things. How can it be sufficient? How can the time be sufficient for me to do those things if I've never done them? God didn't intend for this passage to encourage us to say, well, you know what, everybody needs to live a life of rebellion for a little while before they come to faith in Christ. That's that's not the point. He says, whatever time you've spent apart from God is a sufficient amount of time to be condemned for your sins. That's what's sufficient. Actually, the word sufficient is a word that could be translated as to be content. That is, understand, be content with that time which you were away from God, understanding the condemnation that was brought on you. Be content understanding that that God has delivered you out of that and that you're not to pursue it. See, our lives ought to reflect the reality of regeneration. That is, we we ought to be different from the world around us. You know, I've met with several people over the years, many who have come to faith later in life, and and this would describe much of what their life was like beforehand. They they were involved in all of these these wild things, these these revelries and drinking parties and and things that are, are abominable before God. And none of them, none of them want to go back to that. None of them want to go back to where they were, but they live with a regret that they wasted so much of their life pursuing the things of the world rather than serving God. And yet, there are Christians, there are believers, or so-called believers, that will look at a passage like this and say, well, you know, I was brought up in the church and I never, and I, and I was converted at an early age and I never experienced these things and, and I really think that I'm missing out on something. Listen, if, if, if your heart is after the things of the world, then, then you have a heart problem before God. Because God's purpose in saving us isn't so that, so that we can pursue the things of the world, but so that we can pursue Him. We need, we need to not cling to those things that are in the world, but we need to cling to God. We need to to cling to the regenerating power of the Spirit, which came into us, which gave us a knowledge of the truth, which helped us to understand that it was sufficient before, and the things that, that we did. Anything that you've done in your life that is against God's Word and God's will is sufficient enough to condemn you for eternity. That that is the reality of being born under the curse of sin. Being born into a world that does not know God and is opposed to God. And and you're born into this world and our hearts are not right and, and God is gracious to us for a time, but the moment we become aware of what sin is and we choose it, we become guilty before a holy God. We become condemned. And we're not to pursue those things as Christians. Having been saved, we ought to desist from sinful living. 
That doesn't mean that we don't struggle with the draw of sin. I think there are times in life that, especially for those that have, have lived a life of sin before, there are certain aspects of that former life that still draw us, they still get our attention, they still tempt us to a degree, but there's no enjoyment left there for us. There's no satisfaction there for us because we can only be satisfied in Christ. Christians, we might struggle with sin, but we ought not to long for it. We might struggle with sin, but we need to recognize that it was that very sin that put Christ on the cross. It was that very sin that he poured his blood out for, to cover. It was that sin that he died for. And we ought to abhor it because of that. If, you, if your desire is more for the pleasures of the world than for, the, than for pleasing the Lord, there's a heart issue. It's a heart issue that God is able to change. James 4.4 warns us, he says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those are some pretty strong warnings to us in Scripture. Those are very strong warnings to remind us that as followers of Christ, we cannot pursue the things of the world over the things of the Lord. Like I said, we may struggle, but our greatest desire ought to be that of pleasing our Heavenly Father and living for Him. God knows that we struggle. God knows our heart. And His purpose in reminding us of this and in what Peter is telling us here is a matter of examining our desires. Has your heart been changed by the love of Christ? Or are you still of the world? Is our example one that demonstrates the reality of regeneration, or is it one that blends in with a God-hating culture? We must be devoted to the things of God. We must be devoted to His will and His word and His way, so that as examples to the world around us, we might demonstrate the reality of regeneration understanding that when we do so, there is a response from our culture. And this is what we see in verse number 4. In all this, that is in all of these things in which we're not participating in anymore, it says they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. We're given two responses of the culture towards the Christian who no longer participates in the things that the culture deems to be worthy of pursuit. And while we are looking at a culture historically that was pagan and was involved in all kinds of immoral acts and different things, when we look at the world in which we live and the culture in which we exist today, it's really not all that different. Our culture at large has turned their back on God 
They have said that we ought to pursue whatever feels right, whatever feels good, whatever makes you happy, whatever you enjoy you should do, whatever desire fills your heart you should pursue it, and no one should tell you that you shouldn't. And if anyone tells you that the things that you desire are wrong, then they're the ones who are mocked and ridiculed and ostracized by our culture. That's the reality in where we live. So this is, this is very practical when we think about the culture in which we live today and how we're to respond to it and to understand that, you know what, because of what Christ has done, we, we can be different and we should be different. And when we are, we ought to expect the culture to respond to that. And their first response is one of surprise. They don't, they don't understand why you would not want to do the things that they take so much pleasure in. They don't understand why you don't want to go to that party and get drunk. They don't, want to, they don't understand why you don't want to go and, and get high. They don't understand why you don't want to just be involved with as many different people as you can to have the greatest experiences as you can sexually. They don't understand if you don't want to do those things because those are the things that they pursue. Those are the things that they think that life is all about. Those are the things that they want to, to fill their life with because Guess what? They're seeking for some kind of fulfillment. They're seeking for some kind of joy. They're seeking for some kind of satisfaction. And they think those things that make them feel good for a few minutes are the answer. But it's never enough. And it will never be enough. None of those things will ultimately satisfy them. Because we're all created to have a relationship with God. A relationship with our Creator. And until we come to the place where we recognize that the things of this world won't satisfy us and we pursue God according to his word, then we will never find satisfaction in this life. And the, but the world doesn't get that, nor can they. They can't understand it. It's, it's a spiritual reality. They're spiritually dead. They're not going to understand it. So they're surprised that you're not, you're not pursuing the things they're pursuing because they think those things are the keys to happiness. So they're surprised. They think, they think it's strange. Have you ever been accused of not being normal because your pursuits are different than the world around you? Has anybody ever, ever you know, poked fun at you because you didn't want to do the things that they thought were worth doing? Yeah. I mean, we, we ought to experience that. This, this, is, this is part of what comes from living in a world that is opposed to God and seeking to stand and live by conviction is you're going, to, you're going to be ridiculed by the world. They're going to mark you off. We should expect it. We should be prepared for it. And we should endure it. Because it doesn't usually stop with them being surprised it often goes on into that mocking, that, that ridicule. Peter says, not only are they surprised that we don't run with them, but they malign you. The most literal translation from the Greek is they blaspheme you. Now, we don't typically think of blaspheming people, but the word in its most literal sense just means to speak ill of. They don't, they don't like it when you don't do the things that make them feel good because somehow they think you're judging them all of a sudden. And so instead of 
trying to understand where you're coming from. They're simply going to try and make you look bad. They're going to try and make themselves feel better by putting themselves down, putting, putting us down as Christians, make themselves feel better by putting us down. But we are called to endure, remembering that we are being an example. And although we should expect that response from the culture, we must remember Christ's sacrifice that was made for us in order that we might endure. Can we not endure a few moments of discomfort in recognition of the discomfort the Lord suffered for our sake? Can we not endure for a little while when Christ endured so long in order to redeem us? There will be times of confrontation and opposition as people ridicule and mock us for our convictions, but we must persevere. As I was studying this yesterday, as a matter of fact, and I was reminded of an uh, author from the 17th century by the name of John Bunyan. He's not Paul's brother, if y'all don't know who John Bunyan is. John Bunyan was a preacher in the uh, 17th century who wrote a book by the name of Pilgrim's Progress. If you have not read that book, I would highly encourage you to get a copy and read it. It is the most widely circulated book in the world next to the Bible. So if you haven't read it, you're missing out on something. But Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress from prison. Think about, you know, Apostle Paul here, right? Paul did a lot of his writing from prison, right? And uh, Bunyan, in seeking to follow Christ and, and, uh, and honor him, was imprisoned. And he was imprisoned, of all things, he was imprisoned for open-air preaching. He was converted to Christ. He, he felt compelled to preach the word. He, he couldn't find a church that, that wanted to uh, let him practice preaching. And so he just would go out in the fields and he would just, he would just preach to whoever would listen. And, uh, well, they said, you can't do that, and they put him in prison. And uh, they said, you know what, if you agree not to preach, we'll let you out. All you have to do is just stop preaching. We'll let you out. Bunyan's response was, if I was out of prison today, I would preach the gospel again tomorrow by the help of God. Because of his conviction to preach the gospel, because of his desire to serve the Lord with his life, even though prior to his conversion, Bunyan had a reputation of being kind of a ruffian. And uh, there were those who couldn't even believe that he was in prison for preaching because they knew him as a youth. And uh, he had quite the reputation, but Bunyan elected to stay in prison rather than deny his calling to preach the gospel. And Bunyan would be in prison, and he would actually, people would gather around outside of his jail cell window in order to hear him preach. I don't know how they knew he was preaching. 
somebody was probably just passing by. They heard it because he, he couldn't see them. They couldn't see him. But he would, just, he would just preach the word from his jail cell, and people would gather around to listen to him preach, persevering. Because he wouldn't go along with the culture. He wouldn't do what they wanted him to do. But he wanted to serve Christ. When we're faithful to Christ, we will be confronted with a world that is hostile to our convictions. But we must be ready to endure, prepare ourselves to persevere. Through endurance, we show the reality of regeneration in spite of the response from our culture because we recognize that there is a time of judgment coming. There is an accountability that will be given. And Peter points us in that same direction. He says, listen, be encouraged. Understand those people that are mocking you, those people that are making fun of you, they're going to answer for it. Verse number 5 says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, I think sometimes it seems a little bit harsh. And I think part of this is just our just a nuance to our own culture. Of course, there's always a part of us, I think, that, that rejoices in a, this kind of reality, too, is to... Uh, rejoice and you think about those who are doing wrong to you and you want something to be done to them and just knowing that it's coming. They're going to get theirs, right? And we think, well, we ought not to think like that as Christians. But at the same time, God kind of tells us they're going to get theirs. He says, if they don't repent, if they don't turn, listen, you're an example that they might know the truth, that they might see the effects of it in your life, and if they still refuse to hear me, just understand, they're going to give an account. They're going to answer for it. They are going to get theirs. Those that oppose us and persecute us, they are going to have to answer. Not, they don't have to answer to us, but they will have to answer to God. This is one of the reasons why Christians, we don't need to seek retaliation for those that oppose us. We can trust God to take care of them. He will either lead them to repentance or they will suffer eternal condemnation. 2 Corinthians 5.10 reminds us we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The message that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians here is not so much the judgment of unbelievers, but really that of believers. Because I believe that Peter's point in pointing us to judgment is actually twofold. First of all, it's to remind us that there is an accountability for all those who oppose and oppress and persecute and mock. They're going to answer. But we as believers, we also have to give an accounting, which is why I think Peter mentions in verse 5 when he says, he says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You see, God's judgment is universal. Everyone gives an account to God at some point. And so while, strictly speaking, Peter's talking about the judgment that the unbelievers are going to give, he says, but don't forget, he's the judge of the living and the dead. You're going to give an account too. So remember, as you're called to be an example, that you are going to give an account for how well you were an example, for faithfulness or lack thereof. Not to determine your eternal state, but rather to determine your eternal reward. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. 
If any man's work is burned up, he will, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. You see, we can, we can take courage that those who would oppress and persecute us, you know what, they're going to give an account to God, but we also need to remember we are too. So we need to be faithful. We need to continue to stand firm on our convictions. We need to remember to be faithful because judgment comes on all of us. And we would do well to consider that future reality, making sure that we are in the faith and that we are being faithful. The Lord knows our every act. He knows our every thought. So we are encouraged to be a good example, to leave a proper witness. I think one of the great things about being a Christian, about following Christ, is we know that there's a judgment coming, but we don't have to fear it. We can actually rejoice in that time when we, when we get to see our Lord face to face. And if we long to hear those words, well done and good faithful servant, and we order our lives in order to to pursue God and His purposes and His righteousness. If we are honest with the Lord about our sins and we confess them before Him, we know He's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And We can look forward to that day when we come to the judgment seat of Christ and, and we can just lay down and worship God knowing that we have given Him our all. Judgment's a scary thing if you don't know the Lord. But if you know him, it doesn't have to be. We can look forward to it with joy and encouragement. Our example, as we cease from sin and we don't pursue the things of the world, it causes not only surprise, but it serves a purpose of planting seeds for the gospel. People will, people will be surprised. And they may, and, it, and some will, oppose us and ridicule us and mock us. But even some of those will ultimately be re- led to repentance. Because our testimony is a means of opening the door for the truth of the gospel. We need to be an example so that we can plant those seeds. So that people might know Christ, his forgiveness. And they might join us in eternal service to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which is actually what Peter points us to in this final verse of this section, is the purpose of pursuing eternal service. Look at it with me, if you will. It says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. It's interesting to me that Peter seems to like to talk about preaching to people who are dead. We saw it in the last chapter, in, in, verse, in chapter number 3, and uh, he says there in verse 19, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. And we talked about how that was the spirit of Christ preaching through Noah and, and Noah proclaiming the gospel, the way of salvation, and how many people believed him? Seven other people, right? Because there was only eight people on the ark. God says, I give you one way to be saved. This is it. Get on the ark or, or die. And seven people got on the ark. 
know his family, and, uh, and they were saved. And so they rejected the gospel. They were preached to in the past, and they, were, they rejected the gospel. Now, in, in our text, Peter's pointing to the reality that the gospel has been proclaimed to people who have accepted the gospel. And so he's, he's causing us to look back at the faithfulness of those who have gone before, recognizing that there is a present reality and a future reality for us to consider. The present reality of those that have believed in the gospel, that even though they may have been martyred for the faith, even though they may have given their all for the faith, that they are at this very time, at this very moment, they are living in the presence of God, serving Him, glorifying Him, worshiping Him, serving Him for all eternity. The gospel has been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. What does that mean they were judged in the flesh as men? It means they experienced the same ridicule, the same, the same oppression, the same persecution that, that you may experience. They experienced that same suffering. They were judged by men for their faithfulness. Some judged them faithful and followed. Some judged them faithful and persecuted. But it wasn't the judgment of men that really mattered. It was the judgment of God. And because God is a faithful judge and because God redeems those who come to Christ in faith and repentance... There is an eternal reality, an eternal service which we can enjoy as believers so that we will never be separated from the love of God. Salvation is the reality of a life that begins when we believe, but it continues through all eternity. It never ceases. We get to the end of this life and we just make a transition. We transition from serving Christ in this life to serving Christ in the next life. We're born in bondage to sin. We're spiritually dead. That's the condition of the world that opposes us. We're born in this, in this reality in which we don't know God and we don't understand God. And yet, somehow, mysteriously, God, through the power of His Spirit, opens our hearts and our minds to the truth of who we are, of our need for Him, and leads us to a place of repentance in order that we might know the truth and that we might be redeemed from our sinfulness. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3, it says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. He says, listen, I understand the struggle that you're in. This was your condition. This is the condition of those who now are maligning you, who are blaspheming you. These are those who oppose you. You used to be like them. But because of the power of the gospel, you're no longer there. Be a good example. Understand that there's, a, there's an eternity awaiting for you when you come to Christ for faith and repentance. We were, we were dead in our spirit, but Christ has made us alive together through him, through the power of the gospel. Repentance means that we have a desire to change and honor God. Faith recognizes that Jesus is the only and all-sufficient substitute that satisfied God's wrath against us and imparts to us His righteousness. So in receiving salvation, we are given new hope, new desires, new purpose, and we receive eternal life. 
as I already said, it's a reality that begins at the moment of salvation. R.C. Sproul said that the Christian life begins at conversion. It does not end where it begins. It grows. It moves from faith to faith, from grace to grace, from life to life. This movement of growth is prodded by continual seeking after God. You see, it's not enough just for us to make a profession of faith. We need to continue to pursue Christ. We need to continue to pursue God's will. We need to continue to experience victory over sin. We need to continue to put ourselves in God's hands and to trust in Him and to follow after Him so that He might be glorified through us. When we come to faith in Christ, we're, we're reborn spiritually. We come, in, we come in to the spiritual relationships as, as babes in the faith. And we begin to grow and mature in our understanding of God's Word and its applications to our life. And because we grow in our understanding and knowledge, we also grow in the practical aspects, the outworking of our faith. We grow in practical righteousness. We grow in holiness. We become less like the world around us and more like the Lord whom we're seeking. And then when we get to the end of this life, we go on to serve him, even as those whom, Christ refer, or whom Peter refers to here in verse number 6. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the Spirit according to the will of God. Life in Christ never ends. That is why it's eternal life. It's not temporary life, it's eternal life. In Hebrews chapter 11 we come across what is often referred to as the Hall of Faith. And the writer points out there many people whom we read about in the Old Testament who were examples of faith. Some are better examples than others, but all of them listed are those who trusted God ultimately. And then as we get to chapter 12 in Hebrews, in verse 1, it says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the readers to recognize the faithfulness of those who have gone before, to recognize the example that they've left for us to follow. They've, and then Peter draws on that same understanding, that same knowledge. He says, remember those who have gone before you. Remember those that have believed the gospel. And though they may be dead now, they are enjoying the benefits of eternal life in the presence of God. And we have that to look forward to if we endure if we believe if we come to Christ remember those who have gone before remember their example remember they have attained to the promise of eternal life therefore prepare yourselves whatever may come that you may also persevere and fulfill God's will for your life, defeating sin, living for God's glory, providing an example, and pursuing 
eternal service. Difficult times are going to come. We will face opposition. We will face ridicule at times. We will face other examples and hardships in life. But remember, Christ has saved you to be his representative, to be an example to those around you. So don't be discouraged by difficult people. Don't be overcome by seemingly desperate circumstances. But keep your eyes on Christ. Keep your focus on him, on his truth, on his word, on his promises, that you might be encouraged to persevere in the faith, remembering what he endured for your sake, that you might endure for his. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that it brings to us as we seek to know and understand how we engage a seemingly hostile world. Lord, the world continually rejects your truth and seeks its own desire. And Lord, it can be difficult for us when we're around people who are talking about things that they've done and, and are doing. And Lord, sometimes we just we want to be a part of the group. We want to be a part of what's going on, even though, Lord, we know that sometimes those things aren't right. Give us the strength to stand on conviction, to stand for the faith, to honor you in our stand, to trust you, to work in every circumstance, to glorify your name and to strengthen us as your servants. And Lord, let us not be tempted to forsake the way and to bring your discipline upon us, but let us be diligent in honoring you in all that we do. Strengthen us to be witnesses in the world. Strengthen us to endure the difficult people and the difficult circumstances, knowing that your will is being accomplished that your name will be glorified. And it's in that name, the most holy and precious name of Christ Jesus our Lord, that we pray these things this morning.